This is holy ground on which we are about to tread scripturally. Matter of fact, I remember Rodolfo, who just shared communion, remember asking him a couple months ago if he would consider preaching in this section of text. And he never got back to me. And, <laughs> and I, you know, kind of grabbed him, cornered him and fellowship. And, but what he told me really floored me. He said, when I went to the passage and we were in John 19 and he began to read from John 19, he said it was it was as if I was Moses coming before the burning bush to even consider that I would presume to, to take a passage like this and not just kind of appropriate it to myself, but then synthesize it and teach it. And, and sh- it, 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 it's just too holy. It was just too holy. And I thought, wow, that that is the appropriate attitude to have when you come into this section of text. We've spent the last half, the entire last half of the book of John, all is pointing towards Jesus saying, my hour, my hour, my hour, my hour when everything changes in the trajectory of mankind from the earliest pages of the Bible in Genesis 3, 4 the fall of man, all of that is coming to a solution where Jesus says, when my hour has come, when the son of man is glorified in that hour, when all of it comes and and here it comes now, the most precious, the most sacred portion of the story of God, the narrative of his love for us is laid out in what we have been reading these last couple of weeks in the book of John. Pray with me, and then we will endeavor ourselves to walk on this holy ground here in John 19. Dear God, thank you that your love for us causes our knees to go weak, causes the hair in our arms to rise up, just to even imagine that you would consider us, you the creator of all things, who spoke all into existence, Now look tenderly to us and want us to know the depth and the the dear magnitude of your love for every one of us. I pray, God, that this would not just be some passage of scripture that we read as if checking a box, but rather one that we would tremble before to realize that everything rises or falls by what Jesus has done right here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 And I, and I would, would concur with Rodolfo. Unlike many other times where I've been working on sermons and preparing, there was something that just made you shake as, as you spend time in this very passage. Everything. Everything matters based on what we see here. And the fact that it happens in such a way that's even difficult to consider, even as you look at that image. And so today, as we go into John 19, the title of the sermon is The Curse and the Cure. John 19, I'll I'll start in verse 28. I know we've read it a couple weeks ago, but I'll start there just for the context of this. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. 
or I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. They soaked a sponge in it, put a sponge on a stalk, the hyssop plant, lifted it to Jesus's lips. But when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it was the day of preparation. The next day was a special Sabbath. It was the Passover. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of water and blood. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. John will say this again in the next chapter. All of this is written so that you may believe. But because this is so very important, I believe he inserts it here as well. These events, we've got eyewitness, we've got corroboration. This is airtight, water, water uh, tight, solid. Why? Because this is the most important thing to understand because all hangs on this. Verse 36 These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. On Thursday, I I drove up the eastern shore of Maryland to attend a meeting for our camp that we all work together and enjoy together. And as I was coming back down... I came over the Chesapeake Bay Bridge and Tunnel. And as I was driving over, I realized I've, I've done this now many, many times, more than I can count, you know, driven up that way. It is the most efficient way to get to the most beautiful place on earth, the Jersey Shore. <laughs> and as I was, as I was coming back, back down, though, and I, I saw the sun kind of, its rays coming through the clouds and shimmering off of the Chesapeake Bay and Atlantic Ocean off to the left. And I, I stopped and realized, wow, I, I've gotten to the point now where I just drive over this thoughtlessly. But if you ever do this drive with someone who's never done it before, they absolutely lose their minds. I was like, what, what? Like, oh, oh. I was like, what? is it a crashing airplane? What? what? Like, what's, and, and I realize, wow, I've just grown way too accustomed to something that is so wonderful that we experience all the time. Now, even, even more amazingly, people will do that with me going over the Hampton Roads Bridge and Tunnel, which I only associate with bad things. But, you know, because it's the, it, you know, it's the pinch point of all traffic. Some have said we should change the name of Hampton Roads to Hampton Road. But, but, it, but, but even going across that, we, we, we likewise, you know, have a, a friend with us that's like, oh, 
the marvel of it all. I was like, what? what? And I wow. Like, have I lost the sense of wonder? But here's even more frightening is maybe reading through the, the Gospels, reading through the Gospel of John, even reading through this text is because the familiar, familiarity of it, it breeds, well, sadly, not contempt, but, but I think really just a, a callousness that ought never, ever come into play here because of this. But this is very familiar ground. I mean, probably even if you barely kind of stepped your foot into a church, you know, you, you knew that, that Jesus died on a cross between two thieves. They broke their leg. You know, even, even some of these things, they seem rather particular. You, you've heard it before, that they would pierce his side and out came water and blood. Like, yeah, yeah, nice, nice. Not thrilling, but nice. Like, whoa, whoa, where, where have I gotten to in my walk in Jesus that this would just simply become commonplace rather than, oh, you know, I'm just absolute holiness, the holy of holies, fear even as a high priest to go in past the curtain of the holy of holies. And this is what we're being invited into right here and all that it really means for us. And as we look at this passage, I want to look at both the aspect of the curse and the cure. But also, if you're to kind of make sense of this in your notes, my first point is the curse is true. You know, in the last chapter, Pilate utters this really almost a escapism utterance where, where, where he says, uh, what is truth? That Greek word for truth is aletheia. It's also the word that means reality. So I could just as easily say the curse is true or the curse is real. Based on a first century view of what truth is, it's just, just reality. Why I want us to look at this is not just there's a curse, but that the curse is real and the curse is true. Because right in the middle of this, there's this character in here. And, and it's one of the soldiers who ends up grabbing the lance and piercing Jesus' side with it. The subject of many Renaissance art renderings. But then John goes on to say, and the man who saw it, it's a, it's a reference to, we don't know who. Is he, is he referring to the man who saw it, the man with the lance, or another man standing nearby? Is it John himself that's saying this? But, but nonetheless, he inserts it here as an important moment that there is an eyewitness to this that is either me, the writer, or someone that has told me, or even the, the fellow who did this. But there is an eyewitness to say that all this is true. Why? Because it will only be a little while from now where the tomb will be empty. Jesus will be resurrected. It will blow the minds of everyone that it happened. And when it does, so many are going to want to find a way to explain it away. And to maybe say, well, he didn't really die. Or, or maybe he's just some sort of a phantom being that is making his way through all of this. But it is absolutely critically important, as we'll see in this study today, to, to realize that, no, Jesus really did become human. Jesus really did become our Passover lamb. Jesus really did take on flesh and he spilled real blood in his love for us here. Now, why we, we um, need to recognize the fact that this is a curse is that we are cursed. We have grown up deciding to indulge our flesh repeatedly. 
And that's not like a small thing. When we commit cosmic treason against Father God, the creator of all the universe, who made us in his image with great aspirations for every one of you, just like your mom and dad as you were a little baby, a little girl, a little boy, had such great aspirations for every one of you. But my goodness, the moment that all of that wonder and aspiration is tainted by the toxicity of polluted sinfulness, it is a fallen place that is filled with shame and curses the very landscape of all things under God. And it's not some small thing. It's not, well, it's some little thing that I did here. No, I've got even, as I read this, to recognize this all goes down because I decided to indulge my sinful nature repeatedly. Here it, it says it was a special Sabbath. This is a big deal. This is, this is Passover. This is Deliverance Day of a, a reference to Exodus when God delivers his people out of slavery. But it, but it is Deliverance Day that is going on here. But, but it says that, that the bodies, they didn't want to leave on the crosses on a Sabbath. Why? Because it was too holy. And so they broke the legs of the, the two revolutionaries that were on either side of Jesus. Broke their legs. Why? Because many people on crosses would hang there for many days. Probably about three days was the, the, the average time of someone on a cross. Because the Romans used that cross as a very clear billboard to all that would pass by. That was a billboard saying, you want to be a revolutionary? You want to be the big man? Do you want to take on Rome itself? Well, if so, this will happen to you. And that, that was the message of that billboard. This will happen to you. And as you walked by, it was meant to melt your heart and shrink you back and steal your courage. And, and for three days, seeing that body as you would kind of go across your daily commute every day, that message would come along. And that's how Rome was able to help keep control and not have uprisings. Completely dismantle all that they had built as a far-flung empire. So three days is average. And, and so these, this is only going to be a half a day that they're on the cross. So their, their legs were broken because with, without being able to lift from your legs, the, the diaphragm would be so compromised in, in this awful form of, of torture. Uh, by the way, I, you know, my, I remember my eighth grade history teacher and you know, kind of talking about world history would, would always say that if the Romans could find a way to do something that was even more barbaric and painful to someone, they would do it if there was any choice. And it is no coincidence that they seem to have perfected one of the worst torturous forms of capital punishment ever in the history of the world, just at the time that Jesus is under that sentence. But, but, but here's what, what is important, is that to a, to a to these Jews, they realize, and I'm going to read to you from Deuteronomy 21. So just listen, key in just for a second here. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree. And that is certainly what is in view here. That's why first Peter two says uh, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. 
But if any man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. Not only that, you shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. It is such a cursed thing to be hung on a tree, to not just be hung on a tree, but to be hung on that tree because you have done something awfully shameful before the Lord. Jesus is such a center point, a kind of all streams leading to one of shame. And it is at such a concentration right here, right now in this passage that all of it is being brought in a concentrated form of massive shame. The placard above his head, the fact that he's laid out naked, which even that, you know, you're not even meant to build steps on an altar for fear in, in Judaism that you might expose any little bit of your, of your private part. And, and here, the, the shame is amplified in Jesus. It's, I think, why in, in Hebrews 12, the description of the cross speaks of Jesus, that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Now, on the cross, he didn't just bear your sin, but he bore all of the attendant shame that goes with your sin. He didn't just bear your guilt. He also bore your shame. What's the difference between guilt and shame? Guilt is the status of, of truly having done wrong. And it's the activity of what went wrong. That is the object of guilt. Shame is even more intense. It speaks to your identity. And God knows that we, we chip away. We chip away at our soul with every act that produces not just guilt, but shame. And ultimately that shame becomes our identity. And as God saw we made in his image going down such a divergent path from what he had aspired for every one of us. And as we, in choice after choice and activity after activity, when you decided to flirt with that boy because you thought that would be the thing that would bolster your self-esteem, when you decided to take that next step of seducing that girl because that would maybe affirm who you were, no, every one of those things, when you decided to lie, when you decided to look at that paper on the test thinking, well, that will allow me to kind of be bolstered in how I'm doing and how I'm viewed. No, every one of these things, every one of these things actually steals your status, not just the guilt that piles upon itself in debt before a holy God, but also our collective identities as shame begins to fill our identity rather than honor. And before long, there's almost very little that you like about yourself. And your father in heaven mourns it deeply as he watches those made in his image 
step by step, become something so corrupted that it's almost unidentifiable from what God aspired for you. And he knows that it is going to require something of the greatest phenomenon that he could imagine in order to reverse all of this. And the horror of what has been created in all of our souls to God is more than worthwhile. Even though it's against him, even if it's thumbing our nose at him, that nonetheless, in our fallen, shame-wracked state, God still looks at every one of us through eyes of love. He says, I've got to do something different. And the quote at the end here is, they will look on the one they have pierced. That's a quote from Zechariah. It's an intense moment where we, I think, see God realizing that I'm going to make a substitute for this shame. Where he says in in Zechariah, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, that's an interesting phrase. When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, as one who mourns an only child, and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. God is well acquainted with pain, with shame, with suffering, and it's not his design. This is a design flaw. That we introduced into the image of God that he made of of all of us. But God is determined, taking the greatest measure we could imagine, and mourn over his only son. As one mourns over a firstborn. And to put him in the path that would have been ours. To put him in the path of consequence that would have been ours. So that all pain, all suffering, all death. Everything can be born. And on top of all of that, the shame that attends to it as well. God wants none of that for any one of us here. Are you still in a place where you allow that to cling to you? Are you in a place where perhaps it's never really been dealt with thoroughly? Maybe you've never had the experience of the Holy Spirit whacking you upside the head and disrupting you, putting you in front of the scriptures, putting you in front of people that are living out the scriptures where you can see the vast difference fully. I'm a, I'm a man who has had an awful life and a catalog of cas- catastrophe, of toxicity to my soul. I didn't come to Christ at such an early age. And so it gave me a whole lot of time to pollute the person that that God never wanted me to become. But boy, did I ever. And things that I along the way could only process by saying, you know what? I'm just going to squelch that thing and cover it up and put on a happy face and move forward. And things that I thought would never, ever be dealt with or come to light but yet I'm basically a happy person I'll make my way through but my goodness the emptiness that was still coming from that all the while and then when God disrupted my life with this finally understanding that this this is for me for all of us but for me praise God and that I could I could embrace this this is appropriated to my soul oh my goodness and 
And stuff that I thought, wow, was such a leverage point for Satan. I was always worried about how it would suddenly come and terrorize me. My goodness, now that that this has been applied to my soul, now that this flow of water and blood and love has, has really poured itself over me and washed me so that I am, as 1 Corinthians 6 says, not who I was, but now a new person. That is who you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified by the very blood of Jesus Christ and through the operation of the very spirit of God. It was a supernatural operation that takes all of this and changes every one of us. And God wants that. And, 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 and I've lived since I entered into my 30s. You know, when I went from 29 to 30 is, is when my, my life changed because of the cross. But I've lived my life now for 26 years with, with no shame, with none of that. Sure, there are moments where I do bad and you know, I don't feel great about that and I don't celebrate that. But it's not like it was before the cross came into my life. If you're not there, my goodness, God doesn't do all of this for you to live a life still shackled by shame. I mean, don't let what we're doing here today allow you to move forward and just say, oh, well, I guess I'll just try to manage the shame. No, he doesn't want you to manage the shame or the He wants you to eradicate this, to live life to the full, the very centerpiece, John 10, 10. Of this gospel. My goodness. Let this count for all that it's meant to count for. But it's not just the curse is real. But the cure is real. And that's my second point. The cure is true. The cure is real. And the cure is referenced in a a way that is interesting. Where it says not one of its legs will be broken. Not one of his legs will be broken. Do you see that back in the text here? Uh, Right as we began in in verse 31, the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken of the bodies taken down. Verse 32, soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man. Verse 33, but when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. That seems like a curious specification in the midst of all. Isn't there bigger stuff going on? Like, aren't the angels like kind of doing stuff right now? Isn't there... Like, why this? Why, why particularize this? It's an important reason. Because it's a reference to what all the Jews would have heard very quickly and understood. It is, it is a reference to nothing else than the Passover lamb. This is Passover. At this very moment, as Jesus is hanging, all of Israel is in Jerusalem, gathered together in festival, festal celebration, with their respective Passover lamb. And as they look at that Passover lamb, it would hearken back and they would tell the story and they would be thrilled in their soul to talk about when God delivered them out of the hand of the superpower oppressing them, Egypt. And how despite being a ragtag group of slaves, God was able to throw off the yoke, the iron yoke that was crushing them and grinding them into the sands of Egypt. And he delivered them with a loving and mighty fist and hand out of all of that. And what was the demarcation? The Passover lamb. Every home that obeyed God and celebrated that festival with a lamb and took the blood from that lamb and marked their doorposts, marked them as unique and particular and different. And the angel came through and, and, and while he wreaked havoc 
among the oppressors. He looked with kindness among God's people. And what was it that marked them all? What was it that the Passover lamb? And Jesus is our Passover lamb. It, it says in, in Numbers uh, 9, I'll, I'll just read this, this to you. It's, 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 these are the statutes concerning the Passover lamb. They shall leave none of it till morning, nor break any of its bones. According to all the statute for the Passover, they shall keep. This is a statute. This is not a small thing. It's not a small detail. This is a statute of the Passover lamb. The continuity of the old and the new of God's love for his people then until now. That God had always been protecting and gathering and curating his people for an amazing time of finally knowing the full deliverance. Because his cure was going to be ultimate. It was going to be more than just a bringing out of slavery. That's just a physical thing and it's temporary. This is going to be an eternal thing. Transcendent to the mundane experience of just living in this age. But there's an age to come. And to appreciate how how deep and amazing this is. Now, blood is spilt and there's a flow of blood and water. All of this from the Passover lamb from Jesus. When Jesus is introduced... By John the Baptist on the pages of John's gospel, which we now read. John 129, John the Baptist looks at him and says, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of that so beautifully connected coming home right here in this passage. There was a, a fellow who was renowned in the early church in the late 300s. Uh, his name was John Chrysostom. And when he preached of, of this and many people would speculate, so what's up with, you know, when the lance goes in, there's a flow of, of, of water and blood from his body. What is all of that? And, and he speculated, that, you know, when John's gospel, there's, there's not an explicit reference to, to baptism as there is in Mark, uh, Matthew and Luke. And there's not an explicit reference to communion as there is in Mark, Matthew and Luke. But there is in John 3... This story of being born of water and spirit, this command that Jesus gives in John 3. And in John 6, there's this story of Jesus saying that unless you eat my body and drink my blood, and we're left to kind of make sense of it, because in John's gospel, it's, it's told a little bit more figuratively. And, and then likewise, John Chrysostom has said that, that this is actually you know, kind of hearkening back to not just baptism, but communion as well. And whether it is or isn't, I don't know. But I know that through the ages, many people have tried to make sense of John's gospel because it does use imagery more than the others do. And then this might be in the most important spot, a way that's tying together much of what has been commanded through the gospel. And especially such intense commands that Jesus gives that unless you are born of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Like, whoa, that's that's a pretty massive thing that he says. Uh, and, and if that all kind of culminates in, in here is the water and the spirit that is provided uh, for, for you to be baptized of, of, of water and spirit and brought from death to life. Well, then, wow, isn't that kind of amazing that it comes here? And likewise, the body and the blood and the recognition of this and the honoring of the body and the blood that, that is done right here. But is also done as, as we take communion in a worthy manner. But, but anyway, moving on from this, I, I think there's so much, so much that is in the cure, so much that is written about even in the pages of Scripture that we need to, to just marvel at. 
uh, in, in Acts. I'm sorry, let, let me just read a couple passages for you from Hebrews. In Hebrews 2, starting in 14, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, with Jesus, that is, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Why did Jesus have to come as a man? Why did God have to bring about deliverance through Jesus humbling himself, emptying himself of divinity to, to take on temporarily all that happens in a, in a body? Why did he have to? Well, it tells us why there is that so that he could be our brother, so that he could be our sacrifice, so that as, as he shares and as we share with him of, of flesh and blood and existence and mortality, that, that he could do all of this to be our substitute, to be the new Adam, to reverse everything that the first Adam did so that we could have a new one and that all of creation would no longer be subject to the fall, but instead beautifully redeemed into a brand new chapter that is yet to come as, as we all now walk in alignment with the new Adam as we've all walked all of our lives prior to Jesus as the old Adam. There's a lot going on here and it's really amazing. But, but also, Jesus also had to die. Why did he have to die? Because he was determined to destroy the one thing that happened through Adam. Death. Death came through Adam. Death came through sin. The wages of sin is death. It came through death. But if someone is put to death without sin... Well, then there's a bit of a ripple in the universe. And if the one who has authority over death that, that Hebrews was talking about, Satan, believes that he can then claim one without sin for death. Well, then that ripple becomes a cosmically epic ripple. And in Satan thinking that he could surround Perfect love, perfect obedience, perfect submission, perfect alignment with God in Jesus, in, in, this, in this human being. If he thought he could take all of that and claim it for death, well, Satan's got another thing coming. And instead of him gaining victory over Jesus in death, Jesus heads there for all of us. Why? So that we will never be slaves to fear of death again. Why? Because he's going to do more than just not make us not afraid. He's going to actually destroy death itself. He's going to do a takedown of nothing less than the devil and death. And that's what's happening here. It is a takedown. He's, he's, he's kind of like going into death with perfect love and obedience. And in doing so explodes out of death, explodes Hades, whatever that concept is, explodes the whole concept of death so that those made in the image of God could actually now have a new chapter, a new covenant, a new age to come where none of that will apply again. This is like mind-blowing stuff that's going on here. It's a simple narrative but my goodness, what is working on all around the fringes is, is absolutely amazing. That's why Acts 2.24 says, 
it was not possible for death to keep his whole, its hold on Jesus. Second Timothy 2 verse, verse uh, 10 says, Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Abolished death. First Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And later on in that passage, it says, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Where, O death, is thy sting? Where, O death, is thy victory? It doesn't exist. You know, as the song says, ain't no grave going to keep his body down. That could just as easily be said about Jesus as, as we could say it about our brother Damon, who we memorialized yesterday. Because of the work that Jesus has done, because of what has been already done, the, the, the death blow that has been dealt to death and to the devil by Jesus... Well, that wasn't a real death blow dealt to Damon. Ain't no grave going to keep his body down. He is in Christ. He is clothed in Christ. All that Jesus accomplished has been appropriated to him, has been credited to him. Damon goes to death with the same perfect love, with the same perfect obedience, with the same perfection of sinlessness, not because of his own record, but because of Jesus. And so do we all. We can march on those final steps of our life, head held high, confidence beyond confidence, knowing that what awaits us is brilliance and glory and a new chapter. Jesus has done all of this for some really epic consequences. And my goodness, let no shame cling any longer. Is it not time to live victoriously? Is it not time... To live with our eyes set on things above rather than things below? Is it not time with desperation to grab every one of our friends and say, let me show you this? Again, this is such a massive thing. And if we could just go, and here's my, my just final charge. And I, I implore you with all I got. You know, as I was studying this, I, I began looking at passages. This morning, I couldn't even stop. I, I, I read all of the book of Hebrews, because so much of it was so applicable to what we just saw in the narrative of, of John 19. Don't even leave here today. Don't even leave here today without deciding who you're going to link up with. Somebody that you will sit with and you will look at what Jesus has done for us here in this narrative. The hour that has come, the culmination of the gospel of John. But then also study Hebrews chapter 2, 9 to 18. Hebrews chapter 7, 25 to 27. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 1031. This is too important. Everything rises and falls here. Make this a centerpiece. If you've got a things to do this week and you have any sort of a priority, well, on top of the one that's on the top, write this on top of that. That's how critical this is. Don't let this astounding grace, intervention, redemption, transformation, just kind of be a nice little truth that you stumble over only to brush yourself off and say, well, let me get back to, you know, doing my life the way I've been. No, get disrupted, get disrupted effectively. Let this sink in. Think of the implications. And at the end of that, to ask one another, how then shall we live? Indeed.